Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guides to John chapter 5. That's where we find ourselves as we make our way through the Gospel of John. And today we're, we're reading two sections of chapter 5, and it's, it's become somewhat routine now that someone will come up to me and say, Ryan, you take such large sections of Scripture. Are you trying to get through John as fast as possible? And that really isn't my intent, and it's quite intentional that I tend to take large portions of Scripture. I think that um, meaning is often conveyed by a larger passage. And if you take people, if you were to take, for example, the approach that might focus on a particular sentence or word, as opposed to an approach that would second, focus perhaps on a paragraph or a chapter, you're far more often to go awry, to, to, to end up in a wrong place as a result of focusing on something very small than on focusing something very large. The, the author tends to communicate something that's a little bit bigger than they can be captured in smaller portions. And I realize that I can't speak to every part of the passage that we may read, but entrust that you may wrestle with that passage some during the week and hope that I've given you a framework by which to approach the rest of the passage, rather than if we were to focus on a smaller part and spend the next 10 years in the Gospel of John, um, you might uh, walk away with, well, you would probably leave the church, so... That's, that is the reason uh, for our madness, and uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of why I take the approach that I do. So if you're, if you're uh, able, this morning I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're reading verses 1 through 18 and then 30 through 47. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which, was five, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And then picking up again in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that about I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. But how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Boys and girls, you have an excellent opportunity this morning in what to draw. You have this picture by the temple of a pool in which uh, the waters would be stirred and the first one in was healed and there would be cripples, people who were invalids, who were paralyzed, who were sick, all around the pool hoping to be healed. This image you, if you finish your uh, children's worship guide, you can draw that. And if you're particularly pleased with your drawing, we would love to hang it up. Those that have been turned in are sitting on my desk. And we'll get those up, and it will be a great portrayal of our walk through the Gospel of John. For those of you who uh, are a little bit older, a question that you can wrestle with and talk about at home today is, uh, there's something that the invalid and the religious leaders have in common. And it's not necessarily apparent at first reading, but it will become apparent this morning. And so... That's a good question for you to, to chew on, to think through as we walk through the text. Is what is similar between the invalid and the religious leaders? And for all of us, as we've been going through John's Gospel, we've been trying to wrestle with the question, how, in what way, is God present with us? It's a theme of the Gospel of John, that God is, is very much uh, with us and amongst us and in us, and yet I've held that we struggle to believe and perhaps experience that in significant ways. In fact, the last couple of weeks, you know, hearing different stories of ISIS, stories of you know, reliable stories of children who have been put to death for their faith, reading about uh, people suffering under the Ebola outbreak, you know, there is part of you if you're worshiping this God who says He's loving and He's strong. There's part of you that has to say, "Well, any day now." would be a good day to show up. Anytime you want to exercise your power on behalf of the powerless, which is, let's be honest, a general theme in your book, now would be a good time to do that. We wrestle with the problem of evil. Theologians call it the Odyssey, that God is, is loving and strong and powerful and could end things like suffering any time that He wanted, but His plan unfolds in a mysterious way. It's in the midst of that to say, God, where are you? How are you present? We ask that in small ways in our own suffering, perhaps in bigger ways for the suffering that we see in the world. 
And it is that question that, that was nagging at me as I came to John 5, and it helped me to some extent to, to wrestle with that. And John 5 is very much about understanding God's presence and through the lens of understanding His glory. So first we're going to consider the glory of freedom, and secondly we're going to consider the glory of man, and lastly, the glory of God. The glory of freedom, the glory of man, and the glory of God. Let's consider first the glory of freedom in the invalid. The uh, pool at the Sheep Gate was one of several pools that surrounded Solomon's temple. And uh, legend has it, and uh, some this is kind of a, an interesting note because some of you may be a little bit confused with the reading. Some of your Bibles rely still have a translation that relied on older manuscripts, which says, relays a legend that an angel stirred the waters of the, the pool at the Sheep Gate. And the first person into the pool is the one who would be healed after the waters were stirred. Now, earlier manuscripts don't actually have that portion about the angel stirring the waters, so it's been taken out of some of your translations. But I know of no better explanation of what, what the words coming out of the invalid's mouth. I don't have anybody to put me in the water after the waters are stirred. This is my problem. It's first come, first serve. And I'm not getting there. And so this is the situation, what's happening historically at the, uh, the pool at the, at the Sheep Gate. And the pool was surely a place of hopelessness. It immediately reminded me of the house of the dying in India. It's a place where you got dropped off. Uh, it's cripples and invalids and people who suffer from various ailments. And... Uh, they've been deposited there, presumably by their families, and they exist solely on relying on the alms of people who are passing through the temple. It is uh, complete dependency. It's probably a place of significant squalor. And the only hope is to be thrown into the pool after the waters are stirred. The invalid, the character in our beginning of John chapter 5, has been there 38 years. He's lied there, waiting, hoping to be put into the pool and to be healed, and yet has not had that privilege. And Jesus comes along and asks a question that's just a little bit striking. Do you want to be healed? Really? Can you imagine being the man lying there as an invalid? 38 years? No. I'm just getting some sun. Thank you. Move along. In one sense, it's an absurd question, but perhaps that's just the point. Perhaps it's not really absurd at all. Perhaps the invalid has no idea what he really needs to be healed of. And so Jesus asks him, he said, of course, but the situation is I can't get there. And Jesus commands that he be is healed. He doesn't need to go into the pool. Take up your mat, go home, walk, you are cured. It's interesting that the invalid isn't the only person to actually kind of receive that offer to be healed. To be extended by Jesus the the opportunity for what is broken to be put right. Because in verse 21, we see that God is the one who gives life to the dead. The presumption is that everyone is dead, and He has given that same authority to the Son. The invalid, the Jews, everyone else, all of us are born dead. All of us are in need of the life that Jesus offers. 
And the invalid embraces Jesus' offer, but the Jews are reluctant to embrace Jesus' offer. And the first contrast you have to see in this passage is that the invalid says, yeah, sure, do what you can. I've got nothing to lose. But the Jews, on the other hand, will rush to judge and critique Jesus rather than to receive because they don't think that they're in that position of having nothing to lose. Realizing that you are sick and broken, just like the invalid, is the only way to begin to receive the healing that you need. Right To acknowledge that you are every bit as ill as the invalid. And I think this is where John would like us to go first, that if I had a pain in my knee that kept bothering me and kept me from doing the things I enjoyed, and I said, oh, I'll wear a knee brace and keep going. Well, that would be fine unless I realized that what was causing the pain was actually a cancerous tumor in my knee. And then you realize that the knee brace doesn't make any sense. It's not going to fix anything. It's not going to change me. It's not going to improve things. And we realize that there has to be an understanding of our depth of sickness in order to appreciate the nature of the healing that we need. And John at the outset says, yes, you must understand the invalid is right and in that he understands he has no hope. If Jesus has something to throw his way, by all means, try to grasp it. But what we're going is also the realization that the invalid doesn't really understand how sick that he is. Notice the reaction of the invalid as he is healed. He experiences this glory of freedom, 38 years unable to have the function of his body. He suddenly has it. He's carrying his mat. He's called out by the Jews. Why are you doing that? The guy who healed me told me to. Well, who's that? I don't know. He runs into Jesus later in the temple. Jesus says, yeah, go, sin no more so that nothing worse may befall you. The man learns his name, and what does he do? He sells Jesus out. It's his first action. Hey, religious leaders, I got his name. Not, you know, hey, Jesus, I'd like to follow you. You just did a pretty amazing thing. Or even, hey, Jesus, they're trying to find out your identity so that they can persecute you. I told them your name is Michelangelo. Run. Nothing. He sells them out. He prefers to have the company and the glory of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders who are in charge, rather than to experience really the glory of Christ. He would rather draw near and feel comfortable and friendly with the vestiges of power in the people who have passed by him for 38 years rather than to identify with the one who actually granted him healing. So yes, does the invalid understand that he's broken? Absolutely. Does he understand how broken he is? Absolutely not. But how often have we thought that we come to Jesus seeking healing of a particular situation? Jesus, X is wrong in my life. I appeal for you for healing and to make this right. And then improvement happens in that area and we move in the other direction because we would prefer to seek glory from something else rather than from the one who actually has the power to heal, rather from the risen Son of God. The invalid prefers the glory of those in power and celebrates the glory of his freedom in that way rather than actually pursuing the glory that is from Christ. 
Okay? So we see the danger at first in the invalid. That we would seek glory. We might even be pretending to seek glory from Christ Himself, but as that glory comes and it affects our situation, there is a tendency, there is a danger then to move away and to seek glory from something that we prefer. And this shows us the tenacious nature of our hearts. That we would be quick to turn our love and affection from Christ who has done the most for us to things that we covet and desire. We see this coming to the fore in the issue that is raised. And we must consider the glory of man and how the Jews respond to what Jesus has done for the invalid. It raises a significant theological issue. Jesus has said to the man, pick up your mat and walk. He's out walking. The Jewish leaders say, see this and say, wait a minute. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be walking around with your mat. You are violating Sabbath. which is the holiest of holy days for the Jews. It's the day of rest and worship in which they honor God. And it's so significant because it separates them as a people from the other cultures around them. It's how they preserve their identity and their holiness. And they, so they call him on it and say, you're not supposed to be doing this. And he says, well, the person who healed me and enabled me to do this said, pick up your mat and walk. Ah, now. Now we don't have an issue just of law breaking. We have an issue of authority. Because he said, listen, the guy who actually pulled this off told me to do this. Do you have more authority or does he? He's the one who actually healed me. And so the Jews began to wrestle with his response. And they come to Jesus, eventually knowing his identity. And they seek to persecute Jesus for violating the Sabbath. And if you needed to be tipped off, which you probably didn't, but I'm trying to put myself in the seat of the religious leaders because I know part of my heart identifies with them. Where does your heart have to be if seeing a man who had been crippled for 38 years healed, your first response to him is, why are you breaking the law? that's a pretty good tip-off that your heart is not in a very good place. Right? But we can identify, you know what that is? It's nothing more than seeing a good thing, a thing of power, a thing of glory, happen to someone and being angry and jealous about it. That thing, convicting your heart and realizing, oh, why didn't that happen to me? Or why isn't Jesus over here spending time with us? We're the ones who have really been working to faithful. And we know that guy is an invalid because he's been a sinner. We're the righteous ones. You can feel the judgment, the self-preservation and the self-righteousness flowing out of their heart as they respond to the situation and therefore they go to persecute Jesus. And Jesus says, as if the situation isn't, uh, you know, filled with tension already. Jesus says, uh, my father is working until now and I am working. Blasphemy. Right? Why? Sabbath day is the day that God entered his rest. Now, the Jews always knew that God didn't really rest in the way that we conceive of rest or the way they celebrated rest in the law. Babies are still born. The rain still comes from the sky. The sun still rises. Someone has to manage the cosmos even on a day of rest. But that prerogative, that authority is God's alone. And Jesus says, yeah, he's always been working. Jews say, check, we've got that. And I'm working too. Oh, 
you are claiming authority that is divine, that is God's alone. Now, this is a tricky part of the passage because it, living so distant from it and being on this side of it and not being Jewish in our mentality, we think, well, why don't you just recognize Jesus? But what Jesus is talking a lot like he thinks he is unified to God in a unique way or perhaps equal to God in a unique way. And when you start to think about the nature of the Old Testament where God says, I am the Lord your God, I am one God. And you shall have no other gods before me. And here you've got someone starting to say things that make it sound a lot like he thinks he's God. That's a big problem with understanding the Old Testament. A huge tension is created with trying to wrestle with who Jesus is. And so I think it's worth struggling to agree that when Jesus shows up on the scene, God did not serve him up on a silver platter, so to speak. Jesus blows up the world of God's people. And the reason that I think that's important to know is that as we as we come to God and are engaged by Jesus, we sometimes think that that will be a straightforward thing and that Jesus will minister to us in a special way that will be easy. And ultimately that by believing in Jesus, things will kind of fall into place in our lives and they'll go the way they want, we want them to. And even at the very heart of the story, we have to recognize that no, when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's a mess. You see, our hearts are so deeply entangled in understanding things the wrong way, even understanding God's revelation the wrong way. And God is one that is not afraid to surprise us in any number of ways that when Jesus shows up, it is, it's shocking and it's hard to get one's mind and heart wrestled around. And this is why John keeps saying things like, yeah, you only have life when God really reveals it to you. God really has to show you who Jesus is in order for you to grasp him. We should be sheepish if we think that God is easy to understand or if we should just come to his word and our world shouldn't be blown up. If our worlds are as misguided and misinterpreted and set in the wrong direction to the degree that God's people were some time ago, then we should expect in some ways to constantly be surprised by Jesus. To constantly be reframed by him. And so we see here the Jewish leaders seeking really the glory of man. They, they don't like what Jesus is doing. They like the law. They've established themselves and they want everything to operate by this system. And yet when God shows up in the flesh, he interrupts everything. Everything has to be rethought. You can't put new wine into an old wineskin. And so they begin to understand that Jesus does threaten everything that, uh, in the way, everything in the way that they operate. And Jesus wants to drive it home and say, you know, this isn't really just a law issue. He says this issue goes far beyond the law and it goes to how we understand and how we really seek the glory of God. As Jesus proceeds from verse 30 on, he begins to talk about the nature of testimony. He says, yeah, I get it. Listen, if I show up and I just testify of myself, you won't receive that. You know, listen, I, who believes someone who just shows up and starts saying crazy things? Someone has to testify on their behalf, but he says that he's saying this for their benefit. 
He says, John the Baptist has testified to me, and the works have testified to me, but still, you won't receive me. You won't trust. You won't believe that, that something outstanding is happening and scriptures are being fulfilled in perhaps a unique way, but, but a way that you need to grapple with given what's going on in the person and work of Jesus. And this raises a huge issue, right? Because you have the tension of Jesus is challenging the very Old Testament idea of monotheism, which is at the core of, of the Old Testament revelation of God. And at the same time, he's doing these amazing things that even as the invalids declare, listen, only somebody who is given power by God could do the things that Jesus is doing. And so you feel this tension, and, and, and we feel that tension even as we come to Jesus and wrestle with, with the things that we see going on in this world. Because on the one hand, we, we, we say, okay, God, you've revealed certain things about yourself, but I see horrible things happening in this world, and so I have this theological tension. Just like, you taught monotheism, and here's Jesus. What do I do with Jesus? Well, you say you protect the oppressed, and you love those who are downtrodden, and you're for the orphan and the widow, and I see them getting kicked around the globe. Even those who profess your name, and sometimes for professing your name. Where is your glory in the midst of this situation? And so we wrestle that, and we want to come to Jesus. But at the same time, we realize that can we really put God in the dock? Should we expect that God would ever be something that we could evaluate and say, okay, I've heard enough testimony. Or the testimony has been accumulated to the extent that now I say, yes, you must be God in the flesh. What's the problem with that? Right, think about it. From what we all go through periods where we hunger for that. We'd say, if I could just nail it down. Well, there's a couple problems. One, it assumes that your primary problem with faith is intellectual. And if you could just get the testimony straight, you just get the evidence down, if enough miracles were performed, it would somehow tip this balance where you would finally, your faith would be cemented. And that, I can tell you, is never going to happen. Because your problem isn't just rational or intellectual. It's a problem of your loves, of your heart. And what if God did do that? What if he came down and was so persuasive that he persuaded you in that fashion? Wouldn't it be akin to making you believe? Where would be the love in that? And would he still be God if you got to decide that he was God? Those are some pretty significant problems. And so as we wrestle with the person of Jesus, even in the midst of what we see happening in our world, just like the Jews are wrestling with the person of Jesus in the midst of what they see happening in their world, we find that, yeah, it's not just a rational, intellectual thing. And Jesus keeps driving as he moves through John 5. He says, you think it's an issue of testimony and signs. John's born witness. The signs are born witness. God's born witness. Who else do you think is going to bear witness? And he keeps pressing and pressing down through John 5. And eventually we get toward the end. And he says in verse 42, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So he's saying to the very people of God, the people who know intimately the word of God, you don't have the love of God in you. You don't know the scriptures. That should give us all pause. 
What would Jesus say to our hearts this morning? And again, he keeps pressing. And ultimately, he says in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Ah. Pushing and pushing and pushing with the Jews until here's the real issue. You don't care about God's glory. You just care about the glory you receive from one another. That's what you love. And it's actually what's common between the invalid and the Jewish leaders. When the invalid decides to sell Jesus out, he says, I don't care about the glory of God in Christ, whatever that is, I'm healed, I'm going to pursue glory through relationship with those in power. And for the Jewish leaders to say, yeah, you're saying amazing things, doing amazing things, we really don't care about the glory from above. Even though we're saying our entire life is based on pursuing that glory, Jesus says, no, you don't care about it. If you did, you would receive me. You care only about the glory you receive from one another. I think, man, in what ways do I only pretend to seek the glory of Christ? Because of the glory I desire to receive from you or from others? Do I pretend at righteousness, pretend at loving, pretend at forgiveness? Why? Because I seek the glory above? No, it's pretending because I seek your glory. Ryan, he's a great pastor. Ryan, he understands this issue. Ryan, he's forgiving. He's loving. The great danger of religion is that it's such an effective tool to keep us from knowing Jesus. We can pursue it for the glory of one another rather than for the glory of the risen Christ. And that's what made me realize as I struggle with these questions of theodicy, which are real questions, don't get me wrong. I sure do wish Jesus would show up in a very decisive way. But I realize there's another level of my heart where I see these horrible things happening to people who profess the name of Christ, and I realize, oh, if I really want to pursue the glory of Christ, that may happen to me. And that I don't like so much. And in not liking that and being honest with not liking that, I begin to realize, oh, I've been pretending so much pretending at pursuing righteousness, seeking the glory of men, because if I really want to seek the glory of the risen Son of God, why would I think that it comes to me in any way other than through how He prescribed, which is to bear my cross and to follow after Him? Jesus bears the testimony coming because He's been completely obedient to the Father and will be obedient unto the cross. We realize that our hearts pursue glory and freedom, what we perceive to be freedom, the glory of men, the glory of adulation that we receive. But to really pursue the glory of Christ is to draw near to Him without and expect that that glory chiefly comes through abandoning our rights and engaging human suffering because that's how it came for Him. So, I dare you this week to do one thing. Do you really want to grow in appreciating the glory of Christ? Do you really want to expose the way your heart seeks the glory of man and the glory of freedom? Then choose one person, one opportunity this week to enter into human suffering. A situation in which you know you will receive nothing. There won't be, you know, someone may say thank you, but no one's going to notice. No one's going to praise you. 
Do it as quietly as you can. Perhaps it's even someone, as I suggest the idea, you immediately think of someone and your stomach turns and say, oh, I don't want to show love to that person. Why not? Why do you have that reaction to that person? Do you know already that in seeking their good in Christ, you won't receive any of the glory that you really want? So enter in. Serve that person. Identify with Christ. And then do it fully expectantly that Jesus will meet you and you will taste the glory that is His. The glory that He has for you, which will vastly surpass, trump, and cause all other glory to grow dim. Let's ask for His help. Jesus, we praise You this morning. Forsaking all glory of man, the glory of freedom as we perceive it, You're willing to be obedient unto the Father. And in that you receive true glory and extend to us as we share in your life and share in your blood true glory. And we ask that you would, you would call us up into yourself and expose our hearts in the ways that we pursue false glories and help us to go forth this week and to serve. Serve those from whom we will receive no glory except to know that as we do it unto the least of these, we do it unto you. And in that very act to taste more of your glory not so that we can be special or then can turn around and seek more of man's glory, but that we can reveal more of your glory and become indeed more human as you intend. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.